0: inside the ic is sponsored by microsoft federal the choice for classified missions welcome to inside the ic sponsored by microsoft federal now your host justin doubleday hello and welcome to the latest episode of inside the ic today i'm excited to bring you an interview with brett holmgren the assistant secretary of state for intelligence and research the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, or INR, is unique in that it delivers intelligence analysis to advance diplomacy. And that principle has been central to the intelligence community's efforts to downgrade and in some cases declassify intelligence about Russia's invasion of Ukraine in order to share it with partners and allies. We also talked about INR's new strategic plan and how digital transformation is key to the Bureau's goals in the future. Brett, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's great to be with you.
1: Great, Justin. It's it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: And, you know, I'm really excited to talk about, you know, what INR is doing to help support uh, the intelligence mission in uh, the Ukrainian conflict and and also the new strategic plan that your bureau has just published. But first, I'd love if you could give us some context on the structure of INR and its role within the intel community. Sure. So... INR is
1: uh, celebrating its 76th anniversary this year, and we are, uh, in fact, the, the oldest civilian intelligence agency uh, in the United States. And you know what has defined INR over that time is uh, its deep expertise, its independence, and in speaking truth to power. And I say that because that legacy is, I think, what separates us and makes us, uh, in part, uh, unique within the intelligence community. The other thing that makes INR unique is our our mission and our responsibilities. So we are one of three all-source intelligence agencies, along with the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. But we are the only IC component whose primary responsibility is to provide intelligence to support the Secretary of State and U.S. diplomats uh, worldwide. And so, you know, as as you mentioned our uh, 2025 strategic plan that we released uh, back in February, but you know our mission is to deliver and coordinate timely and objective intelligence that advances U.S. diplomacy. And so our vision is intelligence empowering diplomacy. And I know that you know, the entire organization feels very strongly about uh, realizing that vision, and we are leaning in across the board to make it a reality in the coming years.
0: Yeah. And just personally, you know, you spent time at the, you started your career at the Defense Intelligence Agency. You were a senior analyst at the CIA Counterterrorism Center, served on the National Security Council at the White House. How did your previous roles within the IC prepare you for this one at the State Department?
1: Having served as you know as an analyst, uh, as you mentioned at the CIA and then at the Defense Intelligence Agency, you know both of those agencies have very important but you know different missions relative to INR. And then also serving as you know as a policymaker at the White House on the National Security Council staff, where I was routinely a, a consumer of intelligence products and, and analysis and so forth, I think it's given me a good perspective um, both as an analyst. And then as a policymaker and also as an analyst, as someone who'd served, you know, briefly overseas and, and served in the war zones alongside our warfighters uh, and, and and our diplomats and intelligence operatives, it's given me an appreciation for the strengths of the intelligence community and an understanding of you know what the Intel community can provide to support and objectively inform policymakers, whether it's analysis or operational support briefings, you know, et cetera, but also the limitations of what the intelligence community can provide from a capability perspective, but then also you know, in terms of information to support policy decisions. When you're brought up in the intelligence community, you know, on day one, one of the cardinal rules that is kind of drilled into your training is that there is a bright red line between objective intelligence analysis and policy. And so in the IC, our job is to provide apolitical objective assessments to support and inform policy, but you never cross that line. So I think, again, having been a policymaker where you're really pushing the intelligence community at times to get the insights and and to get their perspectives on opportunities that may exist in a policy space, I think in my current role, it has just, you know, it's, it's given me a deep, a deep appreciation again for what the IC can do, what it should do, but also the limitations, and that's allowed me, I think, to engage more
0: effectively with some of our policy clients here at the State Department. Got it. And and you know, currently there's this unprecedented effort to declassify intelligence. There has been share it with partners, allies, and the public when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine, kind of started in December when when Russian forces started amassing on the Ukrainian border. Can you take us into to what went into that calculus to declassify and share intelligence? Were you involved in those decisions? And and just what went into those debates, I guess?
1: As others have stated, this was a policy decision taken by uh, the White House with the support of the intelligence community. And it was taken in order to warn our partners and allies, but most importantly the ukrainians about you know a near and 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 present danger you know building on their eastern and northern borders it was intended to uh expose you know putin's plans and intentions and uh, the disinformation strategy that uh, moscow was employing in the run-up to the invasion and it was intended to help uh, prepare and to mobilize a unified quick western response in the event that Putin decided to invade Ukraine, which unfortunately he did. And so, you know, I can tell you that, you know, having seen the importance of, you know, downgrading and in some cases declassifying this information, while it didn't prevent, you know, Putin's war of choice, it was very effective in mobilizing and uniting a quick response among, you know, our Western partners and allies to push back effectively on their aggression and to quickly facilitate support to the ukrainians and i can tell you having just been in europe a couple of weeks ago all the capitals that i visited there was one consistent theme from our european partners and allies and that message was thank you to the u.s intelligence community for their work in sharing as much information as feasible consistent with national security and in really helping to kind of prepare their own governments helping them prepare for uh, a response uh, if Putin decided to invade.
0: Yeah, I imagine from your perspective that INR downgrading and in some cases declassifying is kind of ideal for this mission of intelligence supporting diplomacy. Is this something that you think will be carried forward as a matter of policy for whatever the next crisis might be?
1: I think it depends. Uh, Clearly, there's been immense value in being able to declassify and to downgrade intelligence to provide strategic indications and warning to expose you know plans and intentions and to share information to enable our partners but it you know I think I think it will depend in some situations collection capabilities are different and so you have to take always have to take into consideration you know sources and methods and if if in some other contexts those collection Capabilities are more fragile or more sensitive. It may be you know, more challenging to do that on the scale with which we've done now. But you never know. I think it really will be uh, depend on the specific situation. But I think we are seeing a clear demand, especially from our European uh, partners and allies, for enhanced intelligence sharing. And it goes both ways as well. And so we stand to benefit, you know, from sharing more with them. You know, we get more in return. And so rising tide lifts all boats in this context uh, is something that I think. You know, we want to uh, see if we can capitalize on moving forward. For INR, you know, our role in the process here at State Department has really, really been threefold. First and foremost, it's providing, you know, the all-source analysis to the Secretary of State, to our senior policymakers on the war uh, in Ukraine. And we've done that, you know, since day one, actually leading up well in advance of Putin's invasion. We were providing, you know, strategic assessments of, you know, how the Ukrainians may respond, Russian responses, how you know, other nations around the world may react to a Russian invasion. Secondly is, you know, we worked very closely with our intelligence community partners to develop and to coordinate on, you know, talking points that were used by the secretary, by other senior departmental policymakers in their diplomatic engagements uh, in the run-up to and then after the invasion. And then finally, when there were requests by our policymakers for, you know, sensitive intelligence to be downgraded and shared, one of INR's vital roles that we play at the State Department is to coordinate those requests with the relevant IC collection agencies. And so we serve as a focal point in the department to work with the collectors to make sure that all those requests go through the established processes. And you know, ultimately, not just for INR, but for all these declassification and downgrading decisions, you know, the, the collection agencies are the ones who make the final call. And so that is what has given me reassurance as someone who grew up in the intelligence community and who you know I think at times this was a bit of a, a cultural shift in terms of you know releasing and, and sharing information um, but uh, again, what gives me great confidence is that the same processes that have been in place for years were exercised in this context as well, just on a larger scale
0: yeah, and, and really quickly you mentioned your recent trip to Europe, was the focus of that trip kind of building up enhanced intelligence, sharing agreements with with some European partners and allies?
1: You know, Justin, the, the focus was really, one, it was revitalizing some of these relationships, especially in the wake of COVID, where over the last two years, many of these relationships with some of our closest partners and allies only until recently have continued to be virtual. And so there's just a benefit of, of engaging in person. And for me, this was my you know first uh, trip overseas in this position. And so it was you know meeting uh, new partners for the first time in person. So that was one. Your know, second was identifying kind of shared issues of interest and concern that we can work on you know moving forward. Some of that involves you know writing joint products that can serve both of our policymakers, and uh, and making sure that we're setting up a regular cadence of exchanges, particularly on uh, Russia, Ukraine, to make sure that we're both uh, both of our organizations and our policymakers are kind of receiving the best outside perspectives on uh, the status of the war.
0: All right. I wanted to turn to the 2025 strategic plan. There's some good detail in there and we'll post the plan um, outline on our website. But can you kind of just describe for our listeners what is that at a high level? Why are you coming out with this now? What What are some of the big goals here?
1: Well, thank you for offering to post that. Look, we are we're incredibly proud of this new strategic plan that we've set forth over the next few years. And I'll just say a few things about it, just to set the context. One is, you know, I entered this organization in sep- September of last year and building on a very strong foundation. And so this was about, look, we've got a strong, strong foundation, but there's a new administration, obviously in office. There are new priorities. And as an organization, we've always got to continue to evolve to address kind of new threats and challenges. Case in point is, you know, Russia, Ukraine as well. You know, we took a fresh look at uh, the status of the organization, where the world is headed in the future, the uh, challenges and the threats that uh, not only the United States is facing, but challenges uh, that we face here in INR around, you know, I think in some cases, uh, opportunities to (laughs) enhance and really strengthen our technology kind of infrastructure. You know, new threats to business processes and to our uh, business strategy from the rise of open source intelligence, you know, outside of government, that's really, you know, that's as policymakers increasingly uh, digest a lot of that uh, analysis and some of it's quite good. Uh, you know, that's frankly a threat to the all source analytic, you know, kind of program. And then, you know, how are we making sure that we are investing in our people and in the talent that we need to really deliver on some of the key priorities for the secretary and for the intelligence community when it comes to science and technology, health security. Areas of of focus in the intelligence community, I think, are more technical in nature than they have been in years past. And so how are we making sure that we're investing in our own workforce and recruiting with a lens, uh, a diversity lens? on our recruitment activities uh, to, achieve those, uh, to achieve those goals. You know, we've got five key goals that we've set forth over the next few years. I won't dive into each of them, but I'll just say a couple words about them at a high level. One is elevating strategic analysis and kind of redefining how we do intelligence support to diplomacy. You know, going back to INR's founding 76 years ago, strategic analysis and long range assessments has been the bread and butter of INR you know, for decades. And we really wanna kind of reinvest in that core capability. And I think over the years, we've become a little bit overstretched in responding to uh, you know, a lot of the demand for uh, current assessments. And we'll continue to do that, obviously to support our policymakers, but we really wanna step back and make sure that you know, in the intelligence community, we are one of those agencies that is thinking about where the world's headed and trying to identify some you know, opportunities and, and risks over the horizon to provide a warning, and also to help enable our, our policymakers to think through you know, wise uh, foreign policy uh, strategies. The second and the third goals are both around technology. So one is undertaking this digital transformation that I mentioned. So this is really to help enable our business. And the other kind of technology goal is around strengthening cybersecurity. So in INR, we own, manage, and operate the top secret fabric. For the Department of State, so that's an incredible responsibility that we have, and so we always need to be investing in cybersecurity across all three of our domains, and we're investing heavily in that, both in resources and capabilities. The fourth is around, you know, building this incredibly diverse and talented workforce for the future that I mentioned about. So it's not just, you know, recruiting folks with kind of deep science and technical backgrounds, but making sure that we are building a team in INR. You know, that does truly reflects the country, uh, the composition of the country. And so making sure that we're recruiting diverse applicants, but also geographically where they're located from. So it's not just from the East Coast or the West Coast. but We want to make sure we're recruiting from all throughout the country from universities that we haven't engaged with before. And so we've got a plan of action uh, to do that. And then finally, the fifth strategic goal is around you know, cultivating a well-managed and resilient enterprise. And this is about trying to leverage you know, best management practices from the private sector and other organizations around risk management and you know, developing really kind of agile business processes to make sure that all the changes we're putting in place today can endure you know, well into the future. So this is being you know brilliant at the basics, um, has been used on the outside. This is what we're, we really want to invest in. Sometimes it's
0: the fundamentals That make all the difference in the long run. And again, that's Brett Holmgren, Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll talk about why diplomats need a better mobile app and why open source intelligence is so important to the future of the Bureau. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to an interview with Brett Holmgren, Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research. There's a lot to digest there. Let's start with digital transformation. And, you know, I saw that the move to the cloud is a big peg under that strategy. I wanted to ask, you know, does the the Bureau rely on, you know, others to kind of support its technology transformation through contracts and things like that? Is that something that you guys are in the driver's seat on to a certain extent? How is that going to work in practice going forward? Sure. So it's, it's a
1: great question. Uh, yes. I mean, I think uh, like a lot of other, you know, government information technology functions, we do depend heavily on, you know, in our third party partners and uh, folks, uh, the contract workforce to do that but you know one of the things as part of our digital transformation that we're trying to achieve is moving our information technology enterprise from what has i think largely been an operations and maintenance function so it's patching vulnerabilities as needed making repairs doing the upgrades responding to uh, help desk concerns we want to shift that into a more modern agile innovative you know technology team that is really driving you know a change in the organization to help enable the business and so it's a cultural shift but i think it's vitally important um, and it starts at the top in terms of you know how the leadership of our organization views technology and the role that it will play we've made it a central part of our 2025 strategic plan to help kind of spark this cultural shift and so some of the things we've done that we're quite excited about we've created a new chief information officer role for the first time in inr I made that individual a direct report to me, and he's part of the senior leadership team. I think that sends an important signal to the workforce about the value we place on technology and that we want our senior tech leaders at the table to help inform and drive business decisions. Uh, We created our first ever chief information security officer position in INR. And previously, a lot of those cybersecurity functions were well-managed, but it didn't have the stature and kind of the title that we think you know is is kind of where the rest of the industry is moving we are establishing an it governance board that will include stakeholders from throughout the department to make sure that we are appropriately managing you know technology risk and that we've got a good input into the technology investment decisions we're making and then all those all those decisions and all of our kind of technology issues are being fed directly into our strategic planning process moving forward and then we prioritize technology in our budget and we're deeply grateful to the department and to the uh, uh, to the odni you know for supporting us in our fy 23 and hopefully in our fy 24 plans where we've made big investments in technology both in the personnel and non-personnel side
0: yeah a lot, a lot of action there and, and one particular thing that caught my eye in the strategy uh, under digital transformation was devising a mobile strategy and developing mobile capabilities to support diplomats worldwide can you tell us any more about what you're envisioning there
1: So, look, a lot of our customers and diplomats, U.S. diplomats around the world are our primary customers. You know, a lot of them don't have regular access to classified intelligence community assessments. They may get it periodically, but it's not, you know, it's not all the time. And so, one of the things we've been focusing on is how can we make sure that we are supporting our diplomats in the field with INR's best insights and information at the unclassified level? That is why we're all in on on open source intelligence. We're standing up an open source coordination unit as part of our analytic efforts to really map out how we can better leverage it and how we can integrate it with our analytic products and other support we provide. Being able to leverage open source in a fundamentally different way than we've done so to date will allow us to share our best insights at the unclassified FOUO or the sensitive but unclassified level on new platforms Tour to diplomats overseas and so our vision is you know imagine a, a diplomat right to work in the morning or they're getting ready at their at their home in the morning and they're somewhere in asia and they're able to pull up the inr app on their mobile device and just like you would you know to go to uh, check out fnn in the morning or any other news publication you can pull up your inr app it'll have tailored content delivered directly to you at the unclassified level if it's available and if not, a little tipper that there's something else for you to check when you get inside the, uh, the embassy at other classification levels. So we want to be able to provide real-time, relevant information to our diplomats in the most excessive manner possible. And we do view you know mobile as a real opportunity for us to do so.
0: Yeah, that, that would be, uh, I'm sure, a game changer for, for your workforce worldwide. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Open Source Coordination Unit. I also wanted to follow on that. You described open source as kind of a, a challenge, or even a threat to all source analytic capabilities that the government has relied on for so long. What exactly are you looking to do with this Open Source Coordination Unit? How are you going to build out more of an open source competency within INR?
1: Let me just say one thing, Justin, just to set the context. Look. The use of open source has been part of INR's DNA since the very beginning. You know, before we were INR, we're, we were part of the Office of Strategic Services, the Research Analysis Branch, and this consisted of historians, anthropologists, regional experts, economists. They were drawing heavily, in some cases, almost entirely, on open source data on you know economic trends and industrial production output in Europe and a whole range of other open source data. To derive really strategic insights into key vulnerabilities amongst some of our, uh, you know, some of the some of the countries j- during World War II, and so it's been part of our DNA from the beginning. And I think the type of open source that our officers and INR, is probably a little bit different than what officers and other IC agencies would like to use and are, and are currently using. You know, for us, it is really being able to leverage some of the traditional open source, so the the translations of foreign broadcasts and, and, and social media. I think what's different for us is how do we do that given just the volume of information that exists today and be able to do it more in real time so that our analysts have, again, kind of bespoke products delivered to them on an ongoing basis throughout the day. For instance, if you are a Chinese military analyst, you want to be able to digest anything that the PRC or you know, uh, semi, you know official, semi-official government spokespeople in China are saying with respect to China's military plans and intentions, whether it's on social media, it's an official statement, etc. And so how do we, you know, for us, the, the tooling that we're looking for is probably a little bit less operational than what you see in other contexts. So that, you know, as part of the open source coordination unit that we are establishing in our strategic plan, in the first instance, it's gonna help develop the appropriate policies and governance around our use of open source. They will also serve as kind of a central point of contact and uh, to help organize all of the training and trade craft that's relevant in this space. They will serve as the uh, focal point to engage with the rest of the intelligence community on open source initiatives. And then finally, to test and to source some of the tools that our officers you know, are interested in using moving forward and then to help kind of oversee the delivery of those tools and manage those contracts uh, that we uh, may use uh, to support our officers with open source intelligence in the future.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's, that's been a, a fascinating conversation over the last few months, you know, is, is the intelligence community's use of open source. So it sounds like you guys are, are taking kind of a bit of a leading role here with this new unit. In the final moment, minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you about the workforce. You mentioned how that's one of the, the goals under this strategy is to invest in a diverse and talented workforce. What, what does the INR officer of the future look like uh, to you from, from sort of a skills perspective and, and, and not just recruitment, but also perhaps retraining or kind of upscaling as folks in the government space often call it. But what does that look like in the future?
1: Well look, I, I think it, it looks not entirely different from the workforce that we have today, right? One of the things that has always separated INR from the rest of the intelligence community is their deep expertise on the issues, right? That's why 15 percent of our workforce have PhDs on you know, you name the topic. They are folks who stay in the accounts for long periods of time, which gives them you know the credibility and the deep institutional knowledge of whatever the issue may be. Previously, it was Russia, China. Now today, we've got officers who've been working the cyber challenge you know, for over a decade. So they're developing that expertise. So I think moving forward, you know, we want to have folks who have that deep expertise. But I think what may look different is that you know we're more willing to bring in analysts earlier on in their careers, and then be able to train them to give them the tools to develop that expertise. Uh, over the long run. So I think the prior model was, you know, we're doing a lot of hiring of folks who already have, you know, the very sophisticated degrees. We'll still do that. We need to do that. But I think we're gonna look at how can we kind of recruit really smart, successful, talented, uh, younger officers or candidates and then work on training them with the skills they may need to succeed in INR in the future. So so that's thing one. Thing two is I think it's important that we have an IT-savvy workforce. And these don't need to be software engineers and programmers, and they don't need to be you know, fluent in JavaScript and, and Python languages. For They don't need to know how to code, but they do need to understand how technology operates. They need to understand and be comfortable with using modern technology so that they can be successful in the future. And so I think that's the second thing is uh, focusing on you know, recruiting officers that are really comfortable with using modern technology. I think you'll see more officers with some backgrounds in science and technology, just given where kind of the threat landscape is evolving in the world. Everything from global pandemics to you know emerging technologies and, and cyber, how all of these technologies are applied in the military context as well. I think it's, it'll be important to have experts on our team that not only understand the deep history of a particular region, or understand applied economics but that, that actually understand and have a deep familiarity with some of the science and some of the education that underpins a lot of, a lot of these dif- disciplines uh, and then finally as you know we've been incredibly grateful for the expertise and the recruits that we've been able to focus on particularly in the you know in the northeast and with some of the best universities you know i don't come from the northeast I've, did my undergraduate at Wisconsin-Madison. And so one thing we want to do is make sure that we are looking across the entire country to identify folks with really diverse backgrounds and different experiences, because in the end, that diversity of perspectives and backgrounds, that's what makes us uh, stronger, that's what makes us better as analysts, so that we're not all, we don't come, you know, to an analytic problem with the same mindsets and the same kind of approaches and the same uh, backgrounds and that we're constantly challenging ourselves and thinking differently about the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, not to be disrespectful or anything, but I think the line is what pale male and from Yale. So you're trying to kind of break away from that still. It sounds like in recruit at a, at a more diverse level than, than in the past.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, I think it's making sure that we are being very deliberate about our recruiting strategy moving forward. And we're going to continue to invest in expertise regardless of where it comes from. Um, we are, but we are going to make sure that we put a premium on, you know, forcing ourselves to think um, more creatively about our recruitment strategies uh, and not just doing what's easy, but doing what's hard, um, because ultimately that will make us better and more effective uh, as a bureau, you know, in the future.
0: And again, that was Brett Holmgren, Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research, talking about INR's new strategic plan and the importance of digital skills, open source intelligence, and diversity when it comes to the future of the Bureau. We also talked about INR's history and its role in the current Ukraine conflict. I'm Justin Doubleday. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.